You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is Lisa Peterson, and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast. This is Lisa Peterson, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest podcast. What are the money stories you tell yourself? My mother had created herself a sort of script after my father died. She would continue at her current job until her three boys were ready for college. Then she would sell the house to pay for tuition and move into a small apartment. It was an important script, a necessary script. It presumed a number of things. First, that somehow, some way, we would all be all right, which was quite a reasonable concern given my father died suddenly, leaving her with three young boys. Second, that her children would thrive despite the current and overwhelming turmoil. And last, that she would at some point be left financially destitute and that this would be her cross to bear. Well, the first two presumptions were right on. The third, not so much. Years later, a successful businesswoman now married to a CEO of a major company, my mom and stepdad were on the verge of graduating and sending their second of five children to college. My sister's one wish upon graduation was to eat at the local five-star restaurant for a celebration dinner, and it threw my mother into a panic. Suddenly, all those years of fear, anxiety, and planned sacrifice came bubbling to the surface. This very expensive meal cut to the heart of this deeply held money script that my mom clung to for survival, even years after it no longer served its purpose. After much coaxing, cajoling, and even tears, we all went out to dinner and had a spectacular time. Yet my mother's reaction has stayed with me throughout all those years of my own financial maturation. And I have no doubt that it has had a profound effect on my own struggles with understanding that simple yet elusive concept that always seems to dance away from me. Enough. Lisa Peterson is a business expert, money and wealth coach, and founder of Wealth Clinic, a global community that helps entrepreneurs to improve their relationship with money through coaching, workshops, and retreats. Lisa shows us how to identify where we're stuck in business, break free of limiting beliefs, and create a thriving business so we live with less stress, greater freedom, and more money. Her forthcoming book, Mindful Millionaire, is set to be released in June of 2020. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you, Doc G. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to have you. And as I had mentioned before we started recording that you and I are both friends with Grant Sabatier. So I'm very glad he introduced me to you. Yes, he wrote the foreword to my book. It's, it's an honor. Well, I'm going to start actually in a way that I don't usually. I'm going to start at the end and then we're going to work our way back to the beginning. I was looking at one of your blog posts where you introduced the mindful millionaire and you wrote, money has little to do with the kind of millionaire I want to be. And I wanted to start by having you explain what exactly does that mean? When I think about the inner journey and the outer journey, which is what I'm bringing together in my work, I, for many years, had a hard time integrating my relationship with money into the spirituality. And so when I say that, it's coming from that, you know, many, many years of trying to reconcile, how do I bring these two worlds together? And, and I feel like that's what I've done with this work, but it hasn't been an easy journey. Let's talk about the beginning of that journey. When you were younger, 
what was the relationship of money to spirituality or even sense of self? It sounds like it wasn't really developed yet. Yeah, it wasn't at all. I looked at money as the thing that was going to bring me the happiness I was seeking. I made that decision very, very early in life. And it wasn't until 10 years ago that I started bringing the two worlds together. So 20 years ago, I began my inner journey. So I spent 10 years completely separating the two. And then about 10 years later, I started realizing I couldn't do that anymore. As I was talking about in the introduction, I believe a lot of our relationship with money harkens back to our childhood, to those emotions we had, or some of those traumas. Can you talk about some of the traumas you experienced in childhood that affected your beliefs about money, especially before you took that spiritual journey? Definitely. What I was faced with growing up is two parents who got married in their late teens and had no role models to help them understand their relationship with money. And they come together and they're both very emotional people who have come from pretty rough backgrounds. And so as you can imagine, you know, I'm growing up in a house where these two folks are trying to figure out what it means to be married, what it means to run a household, what it means to raise kids. And I kind of got caught in the crossfire. Interesting enough, you know, some of us are born very similar to our parents. And I can say I was born very different than my parents, where I just really had a strong idea of right and wrong and how things are supposed to be done and how the world was supposed to look. And my parents were kind of hippies when, you know, this is early seventies and they were figuring things out. And I was like, you're wrong. This is the way it is from a very young age, especially about money. So that, <laughs> that had a big impact. It's almost as if your parents pushed you to an extreme about how you felt about money. Like making money was really important to you in your young life, wasn't it? Definitely. I started my first business at eight. I remember the first time, I think I was six or seven, where someone showed me how you could take dimes and put them into a roll of dimes. And the idea that they multiplied, like I'll never forget it. I got chills all over my body. I was like, I need lots of rolls of dimes because this adds up fast. And that obsession, you know, continued. <laughs> Do you think for you it was part of your genetics or do you think somewhere deep down inside it was a conscious reaction to your parents' free-spiritedness? I think it's all of the above, but I will say, and I'm sure we'll end up talking more about this, the one thing that I do now understand deeply about myself is I have always had a very strong relationship with fear and it led my life. And so there was something inside of me very early on that said, money helps you deal with fear. Like maybe just because I was using it to fill that hole because there was a lot of fear in my home about, are we going to lose our car? Are we going to lose our house? What's the latest catastrophe that's going to happen? And I would say, well, all those fights are about money. So it means that money is going to solve all the problems. And then you're right. It took it to the next level because, you know, I was good at it. It's safe to say that you grew up with a certain amount of money insecurity. I did because... My parents were able to always have food on the table, a roof over our heads. It was the perception that everything was about to fall apart tomorrow that I lived with all the time. And as you got older, you found quite a bit of success making money. Did it calm those fears? I thought it did, but it wasn't until... 1999 when my father was killed in a brutal way. And I don't know why it was, you know, I was 32 at the time and I got this news and it was like this fabricated idea of what had been helping me and how money. And by that time we weren't millionaires yet, but we were quickly on the pathway to becoming millionaires. And I saw through it for the first time that what I had been trying to do and create happiness and joy in my life wasn't working. And it was all just sort of a house of cards that fell. I was about to say in the book, you mentioned really two episodes in your life that made you much more mindful about what you were doing with money. One was the unexpected uh, and violent death of your father. And the other was an episode you had at a doctor's office. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? 
So I began this spiritual journey after my father was killed. And then 14 years later in 2013, I had already been going through a lot of other challenges with the passing of my mom who got ovarian cancer, the passing of my grandmother. A lot of things had happened between those 14 years. But at the time I was a financial advisor and a thriving practice. And I was sitting in my doctor's office right before Christmas in 2013. And a man walked into the doctor's office and pulled out a very large gun right in front of me, kind of looked at me and the other people in the doctor's office and said, you might want to leave now and ended up going on a shooting rampage and killed my doctor. I know it must be hard, but those two episodes in your life, can you succinctly say how they changed your mindset a little bit about the way you were thinking about money? Two things. The first, as I said, when my father was killed, it was like the deconstruction of the idea of the life I had been living and starting to question it. So that opened the door to mindfulness and meditation and spiritual studies. But in 2013, I had already been practicing. I was teaching meditation. I was helping a lot of people, not as a business, but as a hobby and a spiritual center I was teaching. But what happened in the situation with the shooting is that there was a moment in the doctor's office where I was so scared that I literally had the realization that I wasn't my fear. Like it separated this identification of this whole life of living within fear that it still had a hold on me and it broke away. Like it just broke away in that moment. And that's when it was like taking these blinders off around fear where fear was dictating my decisions up to that moment. All of a sudden it wasn't anymore. And that began the new chapter. I see a parallel in your description with how you also described your mom and her battle with cancer. You describe a point where when she realized she was dying with cancer, it actually was more freeing as she was facing maybe what for her was her ultimate fear. Was that a similar type of situation? Exactly. That's very perceptive of you to notice, but exactly. She had been somebody who had suffered from depression and bipolarism. And in that last three years of her life, she lived more joyfully and more freely than all of the years before that. And I say in the book, I was shocked because when you get these sorts of stage four ovarian cancer, most people don't get out of that, but yet it turned her life into a completely different experience. And I imagine for you, there was a parallel with money there. Your mom freed from her fear of death by facing it head on. And at the same time, you were doing very similar things with your money, coming to the realization that having money itself wasn't solving the problems and actively facing your money issues head on the same way your mom was. Yeah, facing these fears that we don't oftentimes even know are dictating the decisions that we're making. As we hear your story, I want to turn to the mindful millionaire because we're really not talking right now about dollars and cents. We're talking about our emotions and how we deal with money on a much more internal level. When you wrote Mindful Millionaire, and as I was reading it, you know, I had the question, is this a personal finance book? Is this a self-help book? Is this a spiritual book? How do you classify it? On the other side, I think of it as a spiritual book. <laughs> but when I was writing it, I want to be super crystal clear. It was inspired by my work with my clients. And it was about the stories that I was diving into, just like you started this conversation, where there were these stories that kept coming up over and over again. And what I found is the more I could dive into the stories, the more I could start to see when you're working with hundreds of people, you start to see the themes that are playing out. And that was what I was like, wow, there's patterns to these ways that people are engaging with money. And I could see them over and over and over again. And so you can call it spiritual. I just call it self-realization, self-understanding. Like when we understand our fears as human beings, we become a very powerful, agile, resilient person. Did the book end up being something different than you thought it was going to be when you started? 
Most definitely. I'm a co-creator. I am learning as I go through the process. So because this involved several people and their stories, they were informing me as I was informing them. And then even the creation of the book, you know, my agent being involved and my editor, this is something that I'm blown away at the contributions of others who have helped shape the work. I would not in and of myself be comfortable putting all of that in a book and just saying, here you go world. Like it's something that has been tested. You know, something is meaningful when all of a sudden people are using the language that you started. And that's what I needed to see could was really happening, that this was helping people because they needed a way to quantify and qualify the fears that were causing them challenges in their relationship with money. And that's what, that's what ended up getting created. When you first started writing the book, did you think you were going to be writing on a more granular level about things like budgeting and investing? You certainly talk about those, but this is not a how to invest book by any means. It's not a how to budget book. Did that surprise you when you came to the end? I think it also had to do with this question you asked before, what kind of book is it? There was a lot of interest in it still being a financial book. And I'm a certified financial planner. Like I've been working in money for 30 years. What's fun about it is I kind of felt like I got to rewrite how I think about money versus the way that the industry had trained me. So I got to think about, well, if you're looking at your relationship with money from fear, how about we build our financial house from that that place and build it out from there? Interestingly enough, when you look at what's out there, book-wise, blogs, podcasts, most people who talk about personal finance really do spend a huge amount of time on money and sense. You know, they're talking about how we spend our dollars, how we allocate them, even how we invest. Do you think we have it wrong? I mean, should we be spending much more time on mindset and overcoming trauma? I definitely think so. (laughs) But... I don't know that very many people have spent 20 years thinking about it like I have. Let's be honest. You know, we live busy lives these days. We don't necessarily have a lot of time to sit on the cushion thinking about how does our fear of survival show up in all the ways that it shows up and how how it affects our lives. Let me ask that same question a different way especially at the beginning of your career, when you solved people's budgeting and investing and even income problems, but didn't address more of their internal fears and worries, did that help them in the end? No, it didn't change. It helped them dollars and cents. And I was really good at helping people invest and figure out the mortgage that they needed to have. And I did all of those things, but I was not having a sense of satisfaction at the other end of that relationship, especially when I saw not everybody struggles with money and not everybody is my target audience, right? So explain that. Some people are totally fine and they kind of navigate life and they don't deal with these struggles that I'm addressing. But when I was working with people who were fighting with their spouse as they were working through a mortgage and they were taking things out on me and and on the real estate agent, like those were the the situations where I was like, wow, it would be really cool if I could actually help take this conversation to a different level. And I didn't have the tools at that time. I feel like throughout the discussion in your book, there's a lot of talk about mindset. Can you talk a little bit about what is the scarcity and abundance mindset? And what is this idea of limiting beliefs? Limiting beliefs and mindset are these descriptions that I think it's far more important what's behind the scenes with them. So the idea of a limiting belief is that we think that there is not enough. In many cases, if we keep going back, we might say there's not enough money. But if we kept asking the question over and over again, ultimately we arrive at what you mentioned in the beginning, which is I'm not enough in some way. So the limiting beliefs, all roads lead to this sense of I'm not enough. And so I'm going to fill the void with these things in, in money and resources and success and fame and status and so on. But when we get down to it, we look, we're looking at the root. So the limiting belief allows us to look at the root cause of the challenges that we're facing in the external world. And the mindset is 
to me, it's about this ability to navigate and be aware of what's happening moment by moment by moment in our relationship with the world. And instead of reacting, which is what happens when we're operating from fear, we're able to respond from a place of wisdom and understanding and intuition and and knowledge of, of our financial matters. So mindset is a collection of how are we approaching the things that are coming to us in life. It sounds almost as if until we understand the mindset, we're indeed filling our cup, but we're filling our cup with all the wrong things, so to speak. We can be, yeah. So a good portion of the Mindful Millionaire, at least the second half, describes the I Prosper method. Talk about what that is and how you came up with it. So like I said, this came out of working with private one-on-one clients who were sharing their money stories with me. And also these years of watching, I, I mentioned I've been teaching mindfulness and meditation for 20 years. And so this process of waking up to who we really are. And so what I was trying to do in my work is you know, when we coach one-on-one with someone, it's very specific to like that person and what's going on for them. But I could tell that if it was having so much effect on people one-on-one, it became very important that there be a more formalized process that people could follow and do it on their own. Like that's where I get really excited because somebody could buy a book for $17.99, right? And be able to walk through these steps of looking at their intention and what they're trying to achieve what's the pattern that's coming up what is the opportunity to change that pattern and so each of i prosper it's you know an acronym where it's telling you part of these steps that you're going to want to go through to opening up to what is this money story what's happening underneath it and what can i heal inside of that money story that helps me to create a new relationship with money all right so most of us know the bad news already if you were using mint as a budgeting app it has shut down but the good news is there's something better and it's called monarch money i started using monarch money myself about five months ago and i knew immediately that i liked it more than any other budgeting app i had ever used for one it focuses on collaboration this is easy to share with your spouse your partner your financial advisor And it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner, and now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer-focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights, we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave, and two minutes later, we'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later, you have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. 
Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. And some of the messages and instructions you give are not things we normally hear when we think about finance. I mean, you're talking about meditation. You're talking about journaling. That's kind of a new concept when talking about how to manage our finances. Have you gotten pushback with using these methods? Do people take to it immediately? Or is there some questioning of whether that is related at all to how you deal with money? Well, the book hasn't come out yet, so. <laughs> but the people who have gone through this process, there's over a hundred people who have taken the course and given me feedback and allowed me to continue to improve it. What happened was they were trying it out, telling me what was helping, tell me where they got stuck, what wasn't clear to them. And so the process is from the people who were actually inside of it and having it help them make breakthroughs. What I've also found is, and I say this in the book, it's not something that you just want and done. It's like you are going to probably revisit it. And every time you revisit it, you're going to be approaching it from the new you and you're going to have new goals that you're setting for yourself. So yes, I mean, it's not meant for everyone. I will say there's a book that's been around for more than 25 years called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. And she definitely inspired me to see that it was possible to evoke the art of journaling and using that art to heal yourself in whatever ways you're ready to see something new. I was really hit by the fact that you really don't have to dive in the book very far to realize that this is going to be deep work. It's going to be a journey. This is not something you're just going to read flippantly, put down, and it's going to solve your problems. Do you think that's surprising to people when you tell them, hey, if you really want to get a hold of these things, you're going to have to do the work and it's going to take time and effort? I think you are spot on that most people don't have any idea what they're getting into with it. And I will say that a lot of the people who come to me have faced some sort of turmoil, you know, more recently in their lives that give them the incentive to make some changes, right? They know they're looking for some help. They've gone through a divorce. They're trying to reorganize their life in the new normal. They've lost someone who's really important to them. They've lost a job. They're ready to create a new career. I will say that if you're at one of those pivotal moments where you know a shift is going to take place, this is a perfect companion to that process because you can do it at your own pace. You can integrate it into whatever is coming up for you. And money typically affects like it's related to just about any kind of crisis that we can deal with. I was also very pleasantly surprised that a lot of what you preach is self-acceptance and even self-celebration. And that's something we also don't necessarily always find when we're trying to learn how to deal with our finances. Whether people mean it or not, there's a little bit of shaming, right? You should spend less. You should budget better. You should work harder and you know get a better job and side hustle more. I didn't get that feeling at all for Unmindful Millionaire. How important is self-acceptance in this process? It is top of the list. And I really appreciate you bringing this up because I laugh about the fact that I don't think that this book could be finished until I could drop away the judgment that I have for myself. Because when, as a writer, we're writing something, if we still hold on to judgment about ourselves, we project it out to the reader. And I did not want that to happen. I wanted everyone and anyone to be able to come in, no matter where they come from, and not judge themselves. Because here's the deal. If you are judging yourself through this process, it doesn't work. It causes you pain. And so I even try to, you know, mention and and Grant reminded me of this. It's like, put it down and sit with it. If you're going forward and you've got a judgmental mind as you're reading this book, like there's something you need to sit with and work through because that's not the spirit in which it was written. I have a favorite saying about how we look at our past, because as you're talking about judging yourself, I think we also have to reclaim our past a little bit, or at least look at it in a different lens. And my favorite saying is that we tell ourselves the stories about our lives that make it bearable, or better yet, magical and mystical. 
And this harkens back to me a lot about this idea of building yourself up as the protagonist. And I think you talk in the book about the hero story. Can you tell us a little bit about what the hero story is and how it plays a role in the I Prosper method? I love the hero's journey based on the work of Joseph Campbell and how it does what you're talking about. It helps us to better understand the story that we've been living in the past and also think about what are the stories that we're creating for the future. Now, I love how you're you're saying sometimes we can have this Pollyanna idea of like what the past looked like. And the problem with that is that we don't learn from the past in the same way when we gloss over the, the painful stuff and we just kind of push it aside or avoid it. And so why this, this part of the story is in the middle of I Prosper, the S, is because I knew that we needed some time to be able to start learning what it means to become honest with ourselves about money <laughs> before we start thinking about, well, what is that story I've been telling myself? And here with the hero, the idea is, is the sooner we can all see ourselves honestly, as the hero of our own journey, what we've overcome, what battles we've faced and what we've had to deal with the the difficult stuff and then came out on the other side, a different changed, you know, person that we love and appreciate. Like, let's do that. And we're going through, in many cases, hero's journeys all the time in many different ways in our lives. We might have a hero's journey with our relationships. We might have a hero's journey with money. So when we start learning this concept, it becomes fun, I think, because we, we think, oh, wow, I was on a hero's journey with that whole episode. And I can see how that process has enriched my life now. Let's talk a little bit about who the market is for this book. Who do you see buying it? So I learned during the process of book publishing that women actually are the number one buyers of books in general. (laughs) They buy books for men even. (laughs) So lucky me that the audience is very oriented to women. I would say about... 80% of my clients are women and 20% men, but the men, when they come, they are right there and they're excited about it and they don't mind being a minority in the group. Women in our culture have always had, I think, more permission to be in touch with their feelings and be in touch with their emotions and do this thing called journaling and I think that there's a lot of curiosity by women right now throughout the world. You know, I get communications from India, from countries that just, I'm like, I didn't even know that was a country, you know, being interested in this sort of work right now, because there's such a desire to come into our own sense of power in our own way with money. And that's what this book is inviting us to learn about. One thing that struck me is that certainly for people who are struggling to make ends meet, could benefit from this book. But there are also a group of people who I put myself in the category who maybe have figured out how to make and save and even invest money. And yet still our relationships with it aren't clear. And we still struggle with what to do with not only the money we make, but finding a sense of purpose connected to that money. So I think that there are a lot of people out there who are not struggling day to day, but maybe the relationship with money still isn't as prosperous, so to speak, as it could be. And that's what I found in my own journey, right? So I became a self-made millionaire in my mid-30s. Fire wasn't something that people were talking about at that time. So I guess we were fire. Um, But nonetheless, I have been the chief student of this work and it hasn't been because I was struggling with how to take care of my money. It was because of all the stuff underneath. And so I'm very clear in the beginning that this book is for both people. But if you think about it at the root of both challenges, when you read the book, you realize, oh, they both are the same root cause. There's this feeling inside that there is a void. There is something I'm missing. I'm not fully living my life in the way that I know that I can. And awakening those possibilities is what the process is about. How have the lessons you learned by writing this book and this journey you've made affect child rearing? How has it changed your interactions with your kids and money? That's a great question. We talk about it all the time. Both of my kids are very 
well-informed about money. So we'll start there. You know, growing up in our home, we talk about money probably a lot more than most families talk about it. I have a 22-year-old daughter and a 15-year-old son. Early on, they could not have been more different. So nature would say my daughter was very cautious and careful with money. My son was not. (laughs) He would spend everything and anything. And one thing I will say is the other day he was sharing about the fact that he is very conscientious about money now and he thinks about it and he strategizes about how he spends it. And as a mom, when he was little and being so focused on money, I was like, oh my gosh, what's this going to look like when he's 20? And now he's like, I don't like spending money. I like being very calculated in what I choose to spend my money on. So that's how he's interpreting it. And I'm sure it will continue to evolve, but it does warm my heart that he's more sensitive than he was. And funny, right? He looks like my family. He acts more like my family. There are definitely some the nature things that I'm like, huh, this is interesting. I think there are different ways to teach our children when it comes to money. One is didactic teaching, where we sit down and teach them about it. Another is modeling, where they see us go through the world And the last is experiential when they get thrown out into the world to deal with it on their own and have to, you know, make mistakes and have wins and losses. Your children probably learned a lot from you by didactic teaching, but I bet they also learned a lot from watching you go through this journey yourself. Do they ever talk about, you know, mom, I saw when you struggled with this and now it makes a lot of sense to me. Oh, yeah. We talk about that sort of stuff. And I actually think that we're better at modeling than we are at the didactic teaching. Maybe it's my hippie roots, but I'm pretty open for our children to make all of their own decisions, even something like politics. Like my daughter, when she was 19 and off in college, she's like, you know, it really would have helped if you had given me a little more of a foundation about politics because I have no idea what people are talking about. So that's how we run. And I think money is the same way that I know that I didn't learn by my parents telling me things. I learned by what they were doing and then I did the exact opposite. So I think the relationship that my husband and I have, and we've been together for almost 32 years, we are so communicative and open about what's going on and our feelings and how things are bothering us and what's coming up. And I feel like that creates a whole person around the relationship with money to just see it and see the struggles and not have it be sugarcoated or hid. I would have to agree with you with our kids too. I feel like the didactic teaching we've done probably has not nearly stuck as much as the modeling and the chances we gave them to experientially learn when we could put them in a safe enough environment that they could fail, get back up and start again. And those have probably been the best learning experiences for our kids. Let's take a little bit of a victory lap here. Talk to me about some of the people who've gone through the iProsper process and talk about some of their victories. What have they learned and how has this helped their life? So one of the stories I cover in the book is around a business owner who had been in business for five or six years. And what had happened was the fears around money, even though she could be a successful business owner, meaning she kept the doors open, she kept the bills paid. What was really happening behind the scenes is she wasn't charging enough. She wasn't able to pay off liens, you know, and things from the IRS. Like there were a lot of stories behind the scenes that started to come out as we were working together. And so the shift, which has been huge, is on the other side of it. There's a realization that the avoidance with money was coming from these rooted places inside, feeling not loved, feeling not accepted, feeling not worthy of getting paid what she needed to be paid from her clients. And so as she moved through the process, she was able to increase her prices, take more ownership of what it meant to be a business owner, take more responsibility and all these things like marketing that she had actually gotten away with not doing much of. Like all the holes in the business started to come out through the process of Once you feel more solid and and strong in your own self and your own self-acceptance, it's amazing because, again, the lens is oriented to money. So it's like, well, why isn't that working? And then, you know, a few stages down and, oh, I see that I'm not taking responsibility. I need to 
take a different approach. And so on the other side, there's the changes in the structure of her business and her being able to 10 times the profit that she was making in a business in a very short amount of time. And what's funny is the first year of doing this work, she was like, this has nothing to do with me and the prices I'm charging. And by the way, I'm not going to charge. I'm not, I can't, my business will fall apart if I charge more. Nobody will stay. And then a year into it, it's like, okay, I'm tired of fighting you on this. You know, I'm going to try it, right? It was like a huge turning point. And after that, it was like, wow, this stuff is really working. But far more important than any of that is the story of the struggles that are going on behind the scenes, even behind the business in someone's personal life. And what happens when they start to step into their own sense of power and their own sense of, I can do this. And I can be the CEO of my life and I can create the things that I'm wanting. And oh, by the way, I'm not going to hang out with people who don't value me and respect me, including loving relationships that aren't serving me and my highest and best. <laughs> and so, yeah, it touches every aspect. And that's kind of what's happened for this person who continues to grow and shift and, and expand into this life that she wants to be living versus what she didn't want to be living, but was too afraid to make a change on. I feel like undercharging is one of those prototypical signs that someone is undervaluing themselves, not just in the marketplace, but personally. And I think we see that over and over again. I imagine in your work, you see that quite often. Yeah, but I want to be clear too, because there's a fine balance between charging what you can get away with. And this is about finding harmony so that when you've got a business, it's a long-term proposition, right? It's not just hype or sensation or great sales skills. It's like people feel the value that they're paying you for and making sure that that's in a very um, reciprocity relationship. I feel almost like there's an intrinsic value, which the work we do has, and then you can toggle up or down in that, but there's a, a certain lane, I guess, to stay in. And maybe that's what you're referring to. And keep in mind, it's not like there's some utopian in between. It's that we're the ones deciding that, but we're paying attention to it with a mindful approach of what's happening here. And you're right, under earning and you know whether we're a business owner or we're working for an employer. I mean, when I worked in the corporate world, I was in the beginning, not the highest person. I had a funny thing happen. I had a boss, her assistant went out of town for a couple of weeks. She had somebody working with her for temporary. She printed out somehow all the salaries of the whole entire team on the group computer. And then I think I was printing a whole bunch of stuff. So I printed a stack of stuff. I was on BART riding the subway home one night and I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, like, whoa. And I noticed that the men were paid more than the women in this very executive job. And it was for a woman boss. And I learned a lot. And after that, I never got paid less than my peers. But it was the lack of information that I just didn't know. Yeah, sounds like it was quite eye-opening. Maybe we all should experience that once or twice in life. <laughs> yeah, I think there's been more of an emphasis on uh, transparency and salaries. And I'm excited about that because I was like blown away. Within six months, I got not quite double, but almost a double in my pay. It's certainly the type of advice we give people when they're looking for a new job. It's, you know, go find out what other people are making at your level in your type of business and make sure you know what your salary range should be for the skills you have. I think that's very helpful. We talked about what some of the people have learned by going through this process. What have you learned by going through this process and learning how to coach people in this manner? So personally, one of the things that I've been learning just, just recently after finishing the book is the fact that one of the things I was actually dealing with growing up was a lot of shame because of the fact that we were lower middle class in a middle class arrangement. And I had no idea about how deep that sort of stuff goes when we're moving from sort of lower class to middle class to you know what we call upper class and the dynamics involved. And so it's, it's really opened me up to understanding this relationship with money at a whole new level when we think about class systems and the communication that goes on in those. I take all of these things that I'm learning and I channel them into the coaching that I do with people now, which is 
finding these pockets of how can you learn from your past? What are the ways in which you can open up, you know, healthy and um, interesting conversations with yourself, with your family uh, that lead you to better integration of the past? So in my coaching, I think I'm a continuous learner. I'm always open to seeing the nuances of what's happening in someone's relationship with money and how that can continue to be channeled back into this work. I also think that this book, it's fun because I'm learning and things that I wrote six months ago, I may not agree with today because it's a living, breathing map that helps us sort of question things. And so it's cool that we live in times where we have this, you know, electronic and internet way of communicating with people so we can update things. We can be human. We can say, hey, I've had a shift. You know, I saw something that, that made me think a little differently about that. And as I'm growing, I think the work and the body of work will continue to grow and make a bigger impact in people's lives. One of the things I was impressed by in The Mindful Millionaire is that shifting and growing framework is very clear in the way you've written the process out. It was very clear to me as the reader that this was an iterative process, something you start in one place, end in another, and maybe circle back and even start again. And I felt like the book left space for you to continue growing. And it sounds like you're creating communities outside the book for people once they've gone through the process to stay engaged and keep growing. Is that right? Yeah, I was really inspired by Hal Elrod's Miracle Morning in that when people are doing a process like this, you really don't want to be alone. You don't want to feel like you don't have anyone to talk to. And so the idea of bringing people together and having a self um, kind of running community where people can ask questions, they can say, hey, I'm working on my sacral chakra and whatever it is of the language that we use in the book. Anybody interested in kind of going through this process with me, you know, tag teaming, accountability, like all of those things. I have no idea what will ultimately happen, but I wanted to create the framework where like minded people who come together and have these conversations and support one another. Clearly, there is a lot of internal work to be done when you go through the process. So it makes a lot of sense that there's also some external connections to keep you engaged and involved and, and maybe even outside of your head for a few minutes since it's such an introverted process. And then being able to tie it too into the money. It's funny because one of the things I'm still learning about is because it can take some time to do the inner work, at what point is it appropriate to turn your attention to the outer financial experiences? And I'll be super clear that even though I've been working in finance for 30 years, as I wrote the process, I would go back and be like, oh my gosh, you need to go do an insurance inventory. You know, you need to go pay attention to how much money you're spending on these things. And it's something that each person I've trusted so far that People know when they're ready to make it very practical. I'm trying to give it all in the book, but I can see how sometimes you have to do the inner work a few times. And then all of a sudden you're like, okay, now I'm ready to take more responsibility with my finances. And that's okay. At the end of this journey that you've taken, the 20 or 30 years of practicing personal finance, coaching, and now putting your philosophy all together in one place, I have a basic simple question. Do you worry about money anymore? I don't. <laughs> now, that's coming from someone who has pretty good net worth. So I want to be super clear. I can't separate that from it. But it's funny. The best comparison I can make, old self, new self, is my husband hasn't even gone through the full process yet with the book. He's waiting for the final version and he's still in that place. So I can see the contrast of the fear and the worry come through and give him grief. So it's an interesting test for me to see like, wow, I've come so far because that is not why I'm making decisions. In fact, now we sort of, he, he can almost look at me like I'm reckless because he thinks that that should be the cornerstone of the decision. And I no longer live there. I'm all about what's the experience, what's going to happen as a result of these choices that we're making. It's a very, very different way to live from where I came from. And just, you know, about that caveat you mentioned in the beginning about your net worth, you also had a very reasonable net worth when you started this process. I imagine you were in a very different emotional place, even though you were doing well financially. 
Yes. However, in 2006, we got a phone call from our financial advisor that all of our assets were gone and that we weren't sure that they were going to ever be given back. I didn't talk about that, I don't think, in the book, but uh, we spent about 18 months and eventually got the money back because of some class action lawsuits with the investment products that we had invested in. But I want to be clear, like, it can all go away in any moment. I mean, I, I, I have that. <laughs> I have been through that and I know what that feels like. And so it's been the ups and downs. The other thing I want to be really clear to you and to the reader and the listener here is that when the money was coming in, I had already started this spiritual journey. And there were times where I was like, the less I care about the money, the more money comes in. And in those moments, I'm like, why? Why is this happening? Like, I don't care about it. I'm letting it go. And the message I got over and over and over again over this past 20 years is is that you need this to be able to show people a new way with money. And that if you don't have that rock solid foundation, you're going to be out there just like everybody else squirming to get, you know, make the money and take care of filling this fear. But because that fear was basically taken care of, I could create a body of work from outside of this scarcity mindset. If I was in the midst of a financial trauma, if I was in a place of scarcity, what is the first step you would tell me to take to start pulling myself out? Compassion is the first step. The most important thing that you can do for yourself is find a way to feel compassion for yourself, your situation. And perhaps as you go into that, maybe even connecting into that person, you know, deep inside, perhaps there's an age associated with it, but a part of you that is really, really scared. And then look that part of you in the eyes and say, I am here for you. I am never going to give up on you and you are going to be okay. I can't think of a better way to wrap this conversation up. Can you tell us what's up next in your life and where can we find you? So you can find me at wealthclinic.com or mindfulmillionairebook.com, know the. And what's next is bringing this book into the world in a beautiful way. I feel like it's a birthing of something new. And and I hope that it provokes people to think differently about money. I feel like the rest of my life is going to be in service of how to help people move out of their fears and into lives that bring them great joy. All right. Well, this has been the What's Up Next podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Lisa Peterson. That's a wrap. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I'd like to thank Lisa Peterson. That's a wrap. You ever scrolling through your Facebook feed and wonder, boy, I wish I could listen to another episode of the What's Up Next podcast. Well, now you can engage our content in two different ways. One, you can go to our website, www.diversify.com. That is D-I-V-E-R-S-E-F-I.com. And go to the top and just click on the podcast button. Or you can check us out on Facebook at the What's Up Next podcast Facebook group. The easiest way to get there is www.diversify.com backslash Facebook. That's D-I-V-E-R-S-E-F-I.com backslash Facebook. We hope to see you there and engage with our community on topics very similar to the ones you'll find on the podcast. Now back to the show. So we're back with Jessica Garbarino from the Facebook page. Jessica, you had some questions you wanted to ask me. Is that right? I know that, Doc G, you have a big announcement about the podcast, and I think I'd like you to talk about that to our listeners. So we've been teasing this for a little while, but the name of the podcast is changing. As you guys know, we've gone by What's Up Next since the beginning of the podcast. That was November of 2018, but the new name is, drumroll please, Earn and Invest. As someone who's maybe not familiar with how you came up with the first name of the podcast. Maybe you can walk us through the history of the first name and then maybe talk to us a little bit about why the name change. So we came up with what's up next because it really fit what we were trying to do. 
when we came onto the scene, there were a lot of people who were talking about financial independence, and there were a number of great podcasts that were talking about financial independence. So Paul and I at that time didn't feel like we were going to add to the conversation by giving people more tools and ammunition to become financially independent. We felt other people were doing a better job at that. But what we did feel is that we could take those discussions to the next level, that we could have these next level conversations about financial independence, personal finance, sort of the what now, okay? So you've made a plan towards getting financially stable, you've worked on your side hustles, you've maximized your W-2 income, you've already calculated out what your needs are going to be, you're thinking about retirement planning. Once you've got all that covered, I in my personal life realized that there was still another story to be told. There was still more I had to think about, about how I wanted my life to be and what my unique purpose and identity and connections were. So our goal was to really work on that next level content. So what's up next was just fun and we thought it was clever and it really got to the root of what we were trying to accomplish. There was only one problem and it ended up being a significant problem. Okay. And I can imagine... What that problem may have been, because I think I even asked you the same question, saying, what's up next? What what does that mean? Yeah, it was a big problem that people didn't know what it meant. And furthermore, someone would come across our podcast and it wouldn't be readily apparent to them what it was about. So as we got more and more downloads and people were more interested in it, it would start showing up on Apple Podcasts, you know, at the bottom where if you are listening to a podcast, it might say, you may also like these podcasts. Or when we had a particularly good week or day, it might end up on the charts for investing or business, but people wouldn't know what we were. So it would be real easy for them to skip over it because the title didn't really tell people anything about what the content of the podcast was and the cover art didn't either. And don't get me wrong, the hard part about this is I love the name. What's up next to me still is very near and dear and really does describe a lot of what we do. And Dave from Accidental Fire was the one who did our original logo. And I love that too. It just wasn't serving the purpose of the podcast, which was to get people engaged and to listen. And if they didn't know what it was about, I just felt like they weren't going to want to come and listen. I have to tell you, when I first came into the Facebook group page, I thought it was What's Up Doc. Like I was thinking Bugs Bunny. <laughs> I think that happens a lot. I think it, it confuses people because I go by Doc Green in the Facebook group. And the reason right. why is I originally was set up as Doc G and I had that for about three or four months. And then Facebook wrote me a, a nice little message and said, that's not a real name. Please change it. So I changed it to Doc Green. Some people realize that I'm a medical doctor. A lot of people don't. And I think it just confuses people. Originally, I didn't want to go by my real name just because I was talking about sensitive information, my finances, et cetera. So I've kept the anonymous Doc G or Doc Green, but I think it does confuse people a little bit. And people also ask, you know, is this a podcast about medicine or only for doctors? And certainly we definitely have physician listeners and I'm a physician, so that I'm part of that community. But also the idea behind the new name was to let people know that this is a general personal finance podcast. Yeah, I think it's definitely going to be something that's clear to people. It'll help other people find the podcast, find the group, um, become more involved. So I think think it's a great change. And did you tell us what that name is? Earn and Invest. And I have to tell you, we even thought, I, I, part of me wanted it to be Earn and Invested. And the reason why is... Mm. The idea was first you earn and then you invest, but not investing into stocks or real estate, but investing into your life. And that gets back to the kind of what's up next is investing in your life. I decided for simplicity's sake to leave it as earn and invest, but in some senses, it's actually earn and invested, which is the idea of becoming more invested in your life. And that's what I hope people learn from the podcast we try to explore these topics about how do we delve deeper into our own lives? How do we find our unique purpose in life and fulfill it? How we reach that ever difficult state of happiness. If we can get to that point, if we can help people learn about such things, I think the podcast fulfills its role. I think that's one thing I really love about the group and the podcast is that one of the biggest 
roadblocks, hindrances in the fire movement is talking, becoming financially independent, retire early, is what do you do next? And is it just chasing the math and the goals? Is that really going to make me happy? And I've had to kind of soul search that myself. And it's difficult. And I'm glad we addressed these other pieces that fall in the line when you're talking about financial independence and setting yourself up for financial independence. And that was another reason for the new name too. We could have tried to use some type of financial independence or financial independence retire early type terminology. But as the podcast grows, a real idea is to include people interested in financial independence, but also people interested in personal finance in general. Because I found that these conversations, these topics span both groups. So there's lots of people who are not necessarily interested in financial independence and certainly not interested in retire early, but are interested in having these next level conversations about personal finance. And so I want those people to be part of our community too, even in the sense that the additional perspectives are helpful and makes it a richer community. I think it it also helps just people to really start thinking instead of putting everything completely on autopilot. I know we talk a lot about autopilot finances, but I think people need to do the work to actually think about what's going on. I mean, still maybe putting some things on autopilot, but coming back and readdressing, saying, is this still working for me? Because life changes, the world changes, and we have to be flexible to those changes too. So I think the conversation helps in all of those respects. So the biggest hurdle for us is to make sure that people don't lose us in the name transition and don't realize that we've changed our name, but yet we are still the same podcast. We are still the same community and we still aim to have all those next level conversations that hopefully you don't find anywhere else on the web or on the radio. And that's what we hope to be our unique space and we'll continue having them as long as people will be listening. Well, I'm really excited and I'm excited about the future of the podcast and and kind of what's to come. So I know you have a lot planned for this year and it'll just be exciting to watch Earn and Invest grow as it has over the past year and a half. Over the next few weeks, I will be changing some of the content on the newer podcast to reflect the new name, but you may still hear some what's up next here and there. I don't want to change the quality of the already recorded episodes. So when I can, I will edit them so that it makes sense with the new name. But you, again, may hear some what's up next terminology. That will disappear as time goes on because I have a good lead of six to eight weeks of content already recorded. So some of those were recorded with what's up next there. But the newer episodes are all recorded with the name Earn and Invest. And that will fade over the next four to eight weeks. But don't be surprised and certainly don't be confused if you hear an episode and you hear the what's up next terminology that's just left over from the recordings we did a few weeks ago. That's awesome. I'm excited. We're definitely excited to roll out the new logo, to roll out the new brand, and it will be happening very soon. So if you see Earn and Invest on your Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the formerly What's Up Next podcast and now Earn and Invest podcast, don't be surprised or confused. We're still the same people. (laughs) Great. Well, thank you so much for explaining the, the big announcement and the new name change. And again, I'm very excited to see where this all goes. Well, thank you, Jessica, for coming on and helping me get this important message out. And we'll see everybody next week. Bye. Cool. Awesome. Thank you so much. Your questions are amazing. And um, I've just only had a couple conversations about it uh, so far. And so I'm deeply grateful for you taking this time and and being interested. No, it's, it's my pleasure. And I wanted to bring a conversation that had enough depth that was fitting for your book because I can tell very clearly you put a lot of time, thought, effort, and work into it. Um, And I don't say that lightly, because I think the book is about doing deep work. And so I didn't want to just hit you with a series of, you know, 
run-of-the-mill basic questions that didn't really delve into some of, of what you're talking about here. So it was important to me that I could that I could come at you with some something of sus- substance as opposed to just, you know, the run-of-the-mill interview questions. <laughs> I, I, I hear it and I appreciate it so much. And um, yeah, it's it's great and it's it's fun to it's just fun to hear kind of what you're up to and how you think about things and how you handle your podcast it's really really cool as i get ready to do mine tech moves fast so keep pace with the daily crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily, wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily, wherever you get your podcasts.